I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. So the way it often works in bookselling is that it all starts with a note. In the case of The Mermaid of Black Conch, it started with an email from the brilliant editor John Freeman encouraging me to take a look at a book he was soon to publish here in the United States, a book he'd fallen deeply for. I did, and soon I too found myself enthralled by the story of the mermaid, Achaia, and intrigued by its author, Monique Rafi. Monique has written seven books, and this one is the winner of the Costa Book of the Year Award, and I couldn't be more pleased to have her as my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. I spoke to Monique from Carl Gables while she was in her home in London. So Monique, for those, of, for those who are not customers of Books and Books, who, may, who might not have had this um, pressed into their hands by me or one of our booksellers, or who might not have discovered it yet, could you tell us, just basically give us an overview of what The Mermaid of Black Conch is about? It's about somebody who's uh, cursed and exiled outsider. And she used to be a young woman and she is banished and exiled from her community thousands of years ago and cursed by a powerful witch and taken off her island by a hurricane with an old woman and banished forever. and. Um, against all odds, she finds love and and manages to beat the curse. I read somewhere a comment by you which said that, where you said old stories are worth rewriting. And certainly in The Mermaid of Black Conch, there are lots of tropes and lots of stories that on the surface we have encountered in literature before. But the thing that's so brilliant about this book is that there are no stereotypes. You've, you've used some 
some things we might be familiar with, but to use them in new ways. Would you talk a little bit about that, and particularly the idea of the mermaid? Gosh, I don't know where to start. I think um, I think I just well, if we start with the mermaid. I I I consciously created her. I I put her together. Um, I wanted her to be big, as big as a marlin, and powerful and saturated in the element of the sea, which is a feminine element. And she is indigenous, and she is not necessarily pretty or compliant or submissive. Um, so I had her early on. I knew who she was. Um, and I actually also had the deaf, the deaf child early on as well. I have hearing loss on and off. I have struggled with, with hearing for all kinds of reasons. So I, I knew there was going to be a, this deaf child. I really, really understood. And I had the mermaid early on. Miss Rain is a character I was dying to rewrite. Um, the white woman who's living in the remnants of the plant, planter's house, who isn't mad, who isn't mad, you know. Um, I'm a big fan of Jean Reese, and I do love her work. And yet the mad white woman in the attic and the story that Jean Reese wrote, I, I feel there's been, she, she's become a bit of a stereotype. And I, I think she needed refreshing. Um, I wanted to write a white Caribbean character that I've come across myself and who is complex and complicated and implicated and cursed as well and part of things. And then the, the two male characters, Life and David, um, again, I just, um, I'm interested in masculinity. Um, I'm a young intersection, not young anymore, I'm an intersectional feminist. And I just wanted to write against toxic masculinity. I wanted to write towards it. I wanted to write good men. Um, I wanted to flip the Cupid and Psyche myth. I wanted Psyche to have more agency. Um, David is the one who grows. I mean, again, all, old stories are always about teaching women a lesson. And in the Cupid and Psyche myth, as well as in the Taino myth, you know, a young woman gets, gets it. You know, the, in the Cupid and Psyche myth, I don't know if you know it, Aphrodite, you know, doesn't want, Aphrodite's trying to marry um, Psyche off to death. And uh, she sends her son Eros down to arrange it and to shoot her. And um, in, instead he pricks his finger. And then the rest is a very long um, rigmarole. And, um, but the idea is, is that Psyche, who was young and spirited and difficult and talented and la, 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 all these things are things that I, I, um, I identified with it when I was young and spirited, when I was a young woman. Um, it just got me thinking, you know, I wanted to write a, from the point of view of David looking back because it's psyche, it's meeting a very unusual woman who unlocked him and who made him more tender and made him 
more of a person of a, of a I brought him into a new new identity around masculinity so I'm playing with more than one story um and I was very interested in the first story I was very interested in that two women get cursed so one is turned into an old turtle and one is turned into the mermaid and I'm an older woman now but I really remember being young and I think, oh, that's interesting. I remember being, when I was young, I remember being, I remember annoying other women for being young, you know, and, I, and I, now I'm older. It's like, oh, I'm annoying now in a different way because I'm no longer sexually uh, an object of the male gaze. So it's like, well, when do you get to be uh, right as a woman? You know, there's questions there about when is a woman um, safe? and not cursable, you know. There's so, again, these old stories that were written by men, objectifying women, women's jealousy, cursing young, sexy, pretty, talented women. Da, 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 da. So, you know, these ideas start tumbling around and I'm really, really, you know, the next thing you know that I, I you start working with ideas and you start making these people manifest and become, who they are in the book you know it's 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 all magic it's all understanding old stories being a modern feminist and working with the gap in between and going okay i've got something i've got something worth revisioning and you did it so brilliantly to be honest for me the the mermaids first mermaid story goes back about three thousand years and if you think about it's what's what's amazing about mermaids is, is that every single culture has dreamt one up so they are pan global phenomenon and they are also pagan they come from when they're pre-christian so they come from when we were polytheic and when we respected nature and were more in sync with nature and worshiped nature and deified nature so we would have been more respectful towards the earth, the ocean, the sky. We would have been looking to nature to predict whether we were going to have an easy time or a difficult time over the winter and the summer. Um, we would have understood the cyclic, we would have understood cycles, we would have understood rebirth, we would have understood <clears throat> that everything looks terrible in winter everything dies but guess what six months later ta-da! everything comes back to life so we understand so that's where she comes from and that's where mermaids come from they come from a time when we were a much more shamanic culture in our understanding in our in our on our in our thinking we were much more in sync we were humble we were we there weren't that many of us either so she comes from thousands of years ago um when um, there was respect for the divine feminine. So I see her as a really potent pre-Christian goddess. And she, you know, woman, Gaia, you know, she's Gaia and she's woman. She's, she's, a, she's the earth um, and she's the sea and she's the mother all pushed together. Actually not the mother, the maid, the maid. And she's been dreamt up again and again and stories have been told again and again but always by men. It's, she's a product of the male gaze. She's a product of the masculine imagination. 
she's always young, she's always naked, and she's always um, unattainable because her sexuality is, is, and she rises from the sea, you know, Venus comes from the sea. So she's immensely powerful that we've been dreaming her up. And we still are very attracted to her. She's hugely iconic. I don't think I understood um, when I began to write about her um, quite how charismatic and iconic mermaids are. But because the book has done so well, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I wrote a good book, but mermaids are pretty big. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like that's yeah. the fact that she has got so much charisma there's so much love and you know instinctive like we we like this this figure of course i love those 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 ugly white american fishermen <laughs> came from miami the trump supporters yeah who came from miami and and uh you know all they wanted to do is bring her back and show her off like they were you know in some sort of a freak show uh, you painted a great picture of them as well. The Americans do fit in there because not enough is being made of the colonization of the Caribbean by America. You know, we are psychologically colonized um, in certain ways by, um, and we're also policed by America. Like our socialist, um, you know, socialism can't catch in the region because America doesn't, won't let it, won't let the spirit of socialism, black nationalism will never really be something that's alive because anyway, that's, I'll go, I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole, but but I think, um, so nobody wants a history lesson, right? You never wanna open a novel. If you wanna, if you wanna know about colonization, which is a big guilt trip for everybody who's pale skinned and has European ancestors, <clears throat> the thing about writing about something like this and also engaging a European stroke white reader is, is that you have to figure out a way where you don't mention it at all. And yet everybody gets it. Yeah, you did that. And you did that in the two characters. Yeah, so, so, so there's, I haven't really mentioned the word. I think I might've mentioned, I don't think I've mentioned the word slavery or colonization. No. I don't think I've actually said it. I've, I might be wrong, but I think you have to, um, you know, Ursula Le Guin is one of my favorite writers. And, and she said, you know, and her, she's very political and very feminist. And she says, look, you really just have to hone in on the emotional core of what the characters are living through. Um, and that's where I stand really is that, um, uh, she's a very different white person to the Americans, for example. And I was interviewed by somebody recently and they said, oh my God, the minute she opens her mouth and she has this sort of Caribbean accent, she becomes less white. Right. And that's, that's, that's what's going on with Miss Rain. If we're not careful in the Caribbean, we're going to end up writing about the same stuff, same old stuff all the time, which is, you know, white people did this, white people bad, um, this is what happened. And it's all true, but do we wanna keep writing about this forever and ever? And, and, and this, is, this is what I mean about, it's complicated. And it's very complicated for white people who live in the region, are from the region and will never be able to leave. And they live inside the 
aftermath of colonialism. In reading about you and 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 uh, and and learning a little bit more about you, I know that you've been an amazing mentor to so many Caribbean writers. I guess um, my career has not all been about writing. Um, a very weird, weirdly, and I've never really understood how this came to pass. I happen to be a good teacher. I just happen to know how to help writers, understand, emerging writers, people new to it. I happen to know how to unpack the craft of fiction. And I don't even know how this happened, but it's true. <laughs> I was very well mentored myself and I am able to do the same thing for others. So um, when the Bocas Festival was launched in Trinidad in about 10 or 12 years ago, um, that gave us all in Trinidad um, a lot of uh, knock-on energy and confidence. And it was really exciting. And I'm friendly with the director of the festival. So I used to, in those days, I would spend six months of the year in Trinidad. I'd spend maybe, maybe four, maybe five, maybe six months of the year. So I started running workshops um, all over all over Port of Spain in various very eccentric um, places, uh, very eccentric and incredibly as well. Um, the most talented people uh, came to me, um, and we had these incredible workshops for years, um, several years. And some of these writers are now emerging um, fully. Um, Ayana Lloyd Banwo, um, Alaki Pilgrim, uh, Lisa Allen Agostini has been a student, uh, Barbara Jenkins. I mean, there have been so many. Um, and it's just been the greatest honor and a privilege and a pleasure. I'm so proud of them. Um, but to answer your, I just, it just look, this, these things just, these, these things just happen, you know. Um, I'm not still teaching there. Eventually, I got a job in a university myself. But I keep an eye on them all, and I do the best I can to support them all. Um, but in terms of what's happening in the region now, I'm so thrilled um, to see what's happening. Uh, so what is happening is, I would say, especially coming out of Trinidad, like 95% of the new writers are all female. And many people have noticed this. Um, so we come from a, a region where we already have two Nobel laureates. Um, I mean, that's kind of amazing. So, um, so Trinidad, I couldn't talk about everywhere else because I know there's a lot of talent coming out of Jamaica and other, other islands. But in Trinidad, we are known for punching above our weight when it comes to literary talent. You know, Naipaul, Selvon, Dion Brand. Oh my God, you know, I could just name on and on at Michael Anthony, uh, Lovelace. I mean, we just have a, a very, very um, li literate and literary history. Um, Naipaul, of course, um, very difficult man, said that women can't write. <laughs> um, and so here we all are. I hope he's turning in his grave. Here we all are, you know, in our scores and scores of women are coming up. And, you know, we're seeing this kind of amazing opening up of um, story. Um, we're seeing Shivani Ramla Chan's 
incredible queer writing, as well as Vani Anthony Ezekiel Cappadeo's incredible writing. And we're also seeing Brianna McIver um, tackling, tackling some old themes through a completely different lens. We're seeing Amanda Smith um, write incredible historical fiction and Lisa Allen Agostini's book about a domestic abuse end up high up in the Women's Prize. I mean, Lisa's book is also like The Mermaid, just published by Shoestring Press or, you know, Indie Press. No connections in the UK, absolutely got there on its own legs merit. So we're seeing this incredible breadth, whereas I think Caribbean writers were had an agenda in the 70s, which was like resetting um, what the colonial masters had set. And so in the 70s, I think that most of the, most of the writers, not most, but the many female writers um, exist and many have been erased and forgotten. Um, but um, we see people writing back to center, to colonial center in a traditional way, reclaiming language, um, reclaiming landscape, blah, blah, blah. And I think, I mean, it's been done, you know, we can't keep doing it. So more, more interesting things are coming out of the region, more voices. And also um, Muslim voices, Buddhist voices, Indo-Caribbean, Afro-Caribbean, female, you know, like a, a very broad spectrum of, of voices coming out. But I, I'm going to stop in a minute. I was on the stage recently with Ingrid Purcell and Ayana Lloyd-Banwo. Ayana is Afro-Caribbean. I'm European-Caribbean and Ingrid is Indo-Caribbean. You would think that a small place could only cope with a few writers because we're all going to be treading on each other's toes. But because it's such an incredible place, there's space for us all. We're all, I am not, we don't have to worry about, you know, we all trying to write about the same thing. What is your family history in Trinidad? How did, how did, how did your family come to? It's a long story, but it's interesting because I've written a book about how it all happened as well. What is the name about of that? It in the White Woman on the Green Bicycle okay. is a novel about my parents and how they arrived and why and why they never left. My my mum and dad, my father was English, um, and my mother was a very mixed is, she's alive still. She's um speaks, spoke three or four languages from birth, was born in Egypt, but her blood heritage is Italian Maltese. But she grew up in a polyglot gene pool as well. Um, her parents came from uh, Malta and Pisa in Italy, and they came to work on the canal, building the canal. Yeah, I know. And that is where my mother met my father, who was a royal engineer in the British Army, and la, la, la. So when my parents met, my mother was a strict, came from a very strict Roman Italian Catholic family. And dad came from cool, you know, Church of England, less passionate about God. And so there was all kinds of, you know, there was a, my mother, she's, she, my mother's Caucasian, but she's, you wouldn't know that she is. She's got very frizzy hair and quite dark skin. She's got blonde hair and green eyes, but she comes from a different world. 
she's not like white people are in the UK. So they went off to live in Northwest London together. And my father found a job in, in Trinidad and they sailed to Trinidad with two suitcases and a green bicycle in 1956. And they went for four years and they're still there. And they never left. And, and a lot of their friends, so the white woman on the green bicycle, which we're hoping is going to be, well, we know it's going to be adapted for screen, um, is really a story about people like my parents. Well, it's full of people like my parents and their friends who they stay on after um, independence. So the Trinidad became independent in 1962 and my parents had already been there for like 15, for 10 years or something. So really a lot of people once uh, in, you know, once the, the Trinidadian people could self-govern, you know, it was time for the expats and the colonial people to leave, it was time for them to go. And many did, I mean, you know, 80% of them did, but my parents were the 20% who stayed. And, and, and they're still there and my brother's still there and my nieces and nephews are still there and I'm still there and I'm still writing about Trinidad. I can't tell you how moved I was by your book. Oh. I mean, for some reason, it, there was there was an intimacy to it, which just floored me. Something's happened with this book, and I was thinking, I was thinking because I've been writing for twenty years, and if I look at my other books, I I stand by them. I think, yeah, they're good books. All my yeah, my other books are good too, but I do wonder whether there is something about all of us where we hit a growth spurt sometime. Some people never do, some people hit it earlier, but I think I hit my, I think it's about when you come from somewhere like I do, which is very, very complicated and the penny drops and you really, really, really understand it. And it's a bit like it's, it's been coming, it's been coming, it's been coming, it's been coming, and then it all starts to come at once. And then that's the kind of, very slow but very like it had a lot of um it was coming this book and it was almost like when I started writing it there wasn't a moment where I didn't understand what I was doing or I didn't I didn't ever think it was ambitious I didn't ever I never thought I I just understood it would you read a little bit do you mind reading a little from the book I can read a bit I might just read from the opening pages that's perfect that's perfect David Baptiste dreads are grey and his body wizened to twigs of hard black coral. But there are still a few people around St Constance who remember him as a young man and his part in the events of 1976 when those white men from Florida came to fish for marlin and instead pulled a mermaid out of the sea. It happened in April after the leatherbacks had started to migrate. Some said she arrived with them. Others said they'd seen her before, those who fished far out. But most people agreed that she would never have been caught at all if the two of them hadn't been carrying on some kind of flirty, flirty behavior. Black conch water's nice first thing in the morning. David Baptiste often went out as early as possible to try and beat the other fishermen to a good catch of kingfish or red snapper. He would head to the jagged rocks one mile or so off Murder Bay, taking with him his usual accoutrement to keep him company while he put his lines out, a stick of the finest local ganja, 
with guitar, which he didn't play so well, an old beat up thing his cousin nicer country had given him. He would drop anchor near those rocks, lash the rudder, light his spliff, light his spliff and strum to himself while the white neon disk of sun appeared on the horizon, pushing itself up, rising slow, slow, omnipotent into the silver blue sky. David was strumming his guitar and singing to himself when she first raised her barnacle sea-clotted head from that grey flat sea. Plain so she, the mermaid, popped up and watched him for some time before he glanced around and caught sight of her. <gasps> Holy mother of God of Christ, he exclaimed. She ducked back down under the sea. Quick, quick, he put down his guitar and peered hard. It wasn't full daylight yet. He rubbed his eyes as if to make them see better. Hey, he called, after, called across the water. Dudu, come. Mammy water, come. Come there. I'll leave it there. <laughs> Thank you, Monique. It's been really, really wonderful talking to you. And, and I look forward to seeing you at the Miami Book Fair. Yeah, I look forward to it as well. 